Go ahead and have a seat. We are going to... At, thank you. Guys, it's been a while, right? Have you even noticed? I haven't preached in like seven weeks, guys. Oh. Well, hopefully that, you meant that in a good way. <laughs> for for the, the other guys that preached. <laughs> well, hey, so, um, yeah, we are going to continue this. We've got, mo- we've got more of this series. There's some, there's some good stuff coming. Today, we are going to continue treasuring God. And my hope, and I think all the other guys that have preached have kind of demonstrated this too, is it's, there's a part of this series that demonstrates that it's easy to say we treasure God. But when you break it apart into these other facets or these other aspects of what does it mean to treasure God... Sometimes we have to be honest with ourselves and be like, maybe I don't treasure God as much as I thought I did. Because it's easy to say I treasure God. But it's harder to say I treasure hope. Or I treasure community. Or I treasure the word. Or I treasure what we're going to look at today, which is treasuring vulnerability. This is a big one. It's easy to say, of course I treasure God. He's awesome. Do you treasure a life of vulnerability? And that's what we're going to look at. Um, First, we've got to look at what does it even mean to be vulnerable? What does it mean to be vulnerable? Well, it comes, that word comes from the Latin. Vulnus, which means a wound. Then there's vulnerare, which means to wound, the verb. To hurt someone, to make a wound on someone. But then there's vulnerabilis, which is able to be wounded or woundable. And you can kind of even hear it. Like if you had like a thick German accent and you're like, woundable, like vulnerable. Uh, But that's what vulnerable means. It means you are able to take a hit, be hurt, be wounded. And the problem is, in our world, in our society, vulnerabilities are bad. If we were to look at cybersecurity for networking and, and web stuff, if you were like, if you were like the, the IT director of a Fortune 500 company, and you're like, guys, I really want to you know, give you guys a lot of credit and praise you for your vulnerabilities and your cybersecurity. <laughs> Everyone would think you're, you'd get fired. <laughs> you're like, what? We should be vulnerable. Well, not when it comes to, like, our firewall. We shouldn't be vulnerable when it comes to our, our top-secret intellectual property. So when it comes to, like, cybersecurity, vulnerabilities are a horrible thing. What about national security? The Department of Defense actually has, like, a lot written about how to keep an eye on, find, remediate, mitigate, eliminate vulnerabilities. This is literally off the Department of Defense's website. And there's a whole, like, you know, 150-page report on how do we spot vulnerabilities. And if you're talking about the military, if you're talking about the U.S. Army, then I'm, I'm with you. Vulnerabilities are bad. We don't want our 
our military to be super vulnerable to attacks. And that makes sense, right? The problem is, we treat our heart the exact same way as like the Fortune 500 company and their cybersecurity, or the government and their military. We decide vulnerabilities are bad. I'm not going to be vulnerable. I will not allow myself to be hurt. I will not allow anyone who's not supposed to be in there to get in there. And we fight this spiritual battle of our heart the exact same way people in power fight worldly struggles. And then, I don't know if you guys know uh, Brene Brown. So Brene Brown is an author, motivational speaker. Great, great. Great ideas. I love what she has. Her, her video on empathy is really awesome. But she came out with this video back in like 2010 called The Power of Vulnerability. And it's been like copied and reposted a, a hundred different ways. And it's a great video. I, I mean, I would encourage you guys to watch it. We're not going to watch it now. But everything she says, and pretty much everything she says in there, I agree with. It's great. It's got like the very different variations of this video have like over 50 million views and people eat it up. And yet, here's the problem. Here's my, my personal gripe with TED Talks. Is that you can sit there, listen to it, and go, oh, that's a great idea. And you don't have to do anything. You don't have to change anything. You don't have to implement anything. There's no accountability to put into practice anything you see in a TED Talk. And so, my, my guess is, that 50 million people listened to Brene Brown talk about the power of vulnerability, but not 50 million people actually practice the power of vulnerability. And that's because the idea of things is easier than the reality of those things. And so even this lesson that we're going to do, I'm going to try to encourage us to practice vulnerability, see the need of vulnerability, and you too, like the 50 million people that watched Brene Brown's video, you could listen to me and go, he's got a point. I agree. And not do anything. But if you really want to like transform, like Steve was saying, if you really want to learn what it's like to treasure this aspect of God, we have to do something. We have to change something in us. And so the problem is that vulnerability is goes against all of our human instincts. We are built on the idea of self-protection. And if, it's, if it seems like a threat, I'm going to isolate it, eliminate it, get rid of it, and go on living in my self-protected bubble. The problem is we can, we can do that about a lot of different things. We can say, oh, I don't like the way this makes me feel, so that's, that's part of my vulnerability, and get rid of it. When maybe what God wanted you to feel was that thing. And, and if we protect our comfort over everything else, we're actually going to grow into a very immature person if we protect our comfort over our vulnerability. And so I just wanted to look. There's two verses that I absolutely love that kind of look at God's nature. The first one's in Genesis and during the uh, time of Noah. Genesis 6, 5 and 6, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. 
Now, God is a creator God, and he has a deep emotional connection to his creation. The thing that he created. This is just going to keep making that noise all morning. Um, he has a deep emotional connection to his, to his children. And even in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah is talking about God, and he says, in all their distress, Israel, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. It's this idea that God feels deeply. And he allows himself to be hurt by us. And so if you, if you were a creator of something, maybe you wrote something, you made something out of you know, wood or anything, like, or you, you drew a picture... If someone else came and destroyed that thing, you'd probably be sad. Like, oh, the thing I made is destroyed. But it's hard for us to relate to this because it's impossible for us to create the way God does that way. Like, we can't. But, but the best way is, our, is parents. When your children, they have a power over us that can break our hearts. Like, shatter them into a million pieces. And that's the glimpse of what God... Now, God could have said, you know what? I don't care about you. You do whatever you want. But that's not what he actually does. He cares deeply. And so God has vulnerabilities built into his nature. And so we're going to see that there's a certain vulnerability that we should have. The way of redemption, restoration, and reconciliation requires a lot of vulnerability. And so it would be easy to say, nope, I'm not going to do anything. But then we miss out on all the things that vulnerability brings. So we're going to look at two quick uh, glimpses into the life of David. And David, uh, we're going to start with a hint of vulnerability, and then we're going to get a little deeper. Now, I don't have time to read you all of chapter 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel. But this is the story of David and Bathsheba and then Nathan. And the hint of vulnerability is, is this idea that, that David, at the end of this, he does admit he was wrong, okay? But I want you to see like how like minimal it was. And we'll get to it. But let's, let, me, let me do the, the Cliff's Notes or the Spark Notes version of David and Bathsheba. So David is an older man. This, this did not go down when David was young and, and wild. This went down when David was old and lazy. David is home. The story goes that all of his men were out fighting, and he was back at the castle chilling by himself with his attendants. And he had become very popular. Here's a, here's a great quote. David has not only taken the throne, he has won the hearts of the people. The entire nation is singing his praises. As yet, there is not a blemish on his integrity. Up until this point, David is like spotless in his leadership. He has expanded the boundaries of the United Kingdom of the Jews in Palestine from approximately 6,000 to 60,000 square miles. The military force of Israel is stronger than ever in its history. The enemy nations now respect this powerful new country. David is healthy. He is happy. He has not yet known defeat on the battlefield, which means his immediate world is relatively peaceful. His economy and diplomacy are a refreshing change from Saul's. 
There was not only a chicken in every pot, there were grapes on every vine. It is a rare scene of incredible prosperity and God-given peace. It's Charles Swindoll wrote that. So this is the world that David is inhabiting right now. Everything is good and easy and, and no problems. And then this is all about to change when he's looking out one night from his rooftop terrace while all his guys are gone and he sees a woman on a roof below and she's bathing and he decides, I want that. And he sends for her and he basically has his way with her. This is a, an abuse of power, probably rape. That, and that's Bathsheba. <clears throat> he sends her away. He doesn't take her in as like one of his wives or anything. And then she gets pregnant. Now she has a wife. Or she has a husband. She's a wife. She has a husband, Uriah. And Uriah is one of David's men out in the battlefield. And David, like, oh, I'm about to get caught. Something bad is going down. So what he does is, he sends word <clears throat> to his general, and he says, hey, here's what I want you to do. Well, first off, okay, first off, he invites Uriah to the palace. And he says, go home and, and be with your wife. And he's like, no, all my, all my fellow soldiers are out dying for their country. Like, I can't. I would never like, go home when everyone else is at war. David's like, I really need you to go home and just hang out with your wife. And he's like, no, never. So he sleeps outside the palace. And David's like, this is not going to plan. So he ends up like trying to get him drunk and getting him, and he doesn't. And one of the, my favorite quotes is that Uriah, when he's drunk, is more, has more integrity than David when he's sober. <laughs> and so David is trying to manipulate the situation to get out of being in trouble, and he can't. And so he decides to go a step further. And so he sends Uriah back to the front lines with a note. He's carrying his own note to, to the general. And the, the note says, hey, this is signed King David. Uh, I need you to advance and then let Uriah lead and then withdraw and let Uriah die. And that's what happens. And so Uriah is killed on the battlefield. It's essentially murder on David's hands. And that, there's a lot more. You can read the whole story in uh, chapters 11 and 12. But David's like, all right, I got away with it. Now I'm going to look beneficial. I'm going to take care of this poor widow and bring her into the palace. But, but someone knew. And that person was Nathan. So Nathan the prophet comes and he says, hey, David, I have a story to tell you. And he tells this story. It's kind of a cheesy picture, but they're all a little cheesy. He tells this story of uh, a rich man and a poor man. And the poor man had nothing. The rich man had everything. The poor man had nothing except this one little lamb. And it made him feel like joyful and happy. His little ewe lamb. He's like, I don't, I'm not rich like that guy, but at least I have my little ewe lamb. And he says, and then this rich guy comes... And just takes the guy's lamb and, and takes it by force. And David gets outraged. He's like, 
Tell me who this guy is who stole this other man's little lamb. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go hard on this guy. Who is this guy? And, and Nathan says, you're that guy. You're the guy that used your power and your influence and all of it. You, you saw something, you took it, and you didn't care about the effects, and it ruined the lives, and that's you. And God knows, and I know what you did. Now, the title of this point is called A Hint of Vulnerability, because David had made a ton of bad choices up to this point. And in this moment, he made... A, a, a somewhat small good choice. He, he, was, he was open to hearing what Nathan had to say. Now, Nathan probably knew, if I come in guns a-blazing, he, this guy's crazy. He could kill me. So I'm going to come in the side door and tell him a story about the lamb. And if I, can get, if I can get to his heart and then do the switcheroo, maybe he'll be broken and contrite. And David was... But he, he allowed Nathan to say that to him. Now, he could have made another really bad choice at this moment. He could have said, well, now i got to kill you too. You know, that's not off the table. But, but he, in that moment, he said, wow, I've been caught and I'm going to, I'm going to let this hurt me. I'm going to let my sin hurt me. He's not entirely vulnerable here. He has a hint of vulnerability when he's confronted and wounded by Nathan. This is his shocking, you know, confession and, and openness. Ready? This is what David said. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Did that come up? I have sinned against the Lord. I don't know why it's taken so long. 2 Samuel 12, 13. I have sinned against the Lord. That's it. That's all we have in, in this story about David being remorseful. And then there's like the punishment is, is told to him. And he is remorseful of that. But this is it. This is the hint of vulnerability. And what I want to ask us is, is this what our vulnerability looks like? Minimal and complicated. For us to be honest about our failures or be open about our sin or to confess something, do we need someone to jump through as many hoops as Nathan had to just to squeeze out the bare confession like, oh yeah, I messed up. Do we have a hint of vulnerability? Now, I'm not going to blast you. Like, if, if this is where you're like, yeah, I feel like I'm more like that. It's good because this hint kind of opened the door and led to the actual heart of vulnerability that David has that we see in Psalm 51. Now, we're going to read the whole chapter of Psalm 51, okay? We don't always read whole chapters, but when we do... I try to keep them pretty short. Psalm 51 is this psalm of confession. So sometime later, David gets his heart right. And then he just 
lays everything out in this song. This song that was published, music was written to it, and everybody sang it. And what's awesome is, in the Bible and in the Hebrew, it says, uh, it starts this way. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. That's like the intro to the song that was in their hymnal. And so, let us read this. This is the whole whole thing. I'm going to come over here. David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper, Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. That's the song. That's the song David wrote when he realized, man, I really, I really messed up. And I got to get, get this right. And he publicly published a song about his sin and his journey back you know, to God uh, uh, for all, everybody to see, for the whole nation to see. And so what's awesome about when we read the Old Testament, one of the things that's so amazing is that we don't just read all the victories and the conquests and the good things, the strengths of the leaders. The Old Testament is shocking amongst ancient documents because it lists all their failures and their faults and their mess-ups too. And Psalm 51 is a perfect example of that. Well, that is just done working. All right. So here's my question. Can I live an open and transparent life? For the men who came to our men's midweek We had those three bags, if you remember. We had the closed bag and the open bag, and then we had the clear bag. And 
some of us are closed, where it's like, you don't know what's going on in my life, you can't see what's going on in my life, and I'm not going to show you what's going on in my life. Some of us are open, like the open bag, where it's like, hey, it's open, but you still can't see inside it, unless you come and look at just the right angle. If you ask just the right questions, then you might be able to dig out the truth of what's going on in my heart. But in this, in Psalm 51, David is transparent. From across the room, you can see what's going on in his heart. You don't need to investigate. He's open and he's transparent. But can we live a transparent life? Here's the problem, though. It stinks sometimes. And it hurts to live an open and transparent life because you feel like, man, I'm on display. My, all my mess-ups are out there for everyone to see. And that's literally the wound of being vulnerable. If we can live with vulnerability, with real, true vulnerability, then there are going to be times where, yeah, it feels like I'm getting stabbed in the heart right now. And that's when our instinct for self-preservation kicks in, our self-protection kicks in. So the question then is like, well, how do I, what are my methods of self-protection? What do I do to like cocoon up and keep things away? Some of us run and we like to escape the problems of our lives. We love entertainment, whether that's something as silly as YouTube or Netflix or video games, to something more serious like chemical indulgence, self-medication, all the way up to impurity, pornography. These are self-protection methods where we do not let anything make us feel uncomfortable. We have to identify those before we can actually live a, a, a transparent and open life, a life of vulnerability. So what is the next phase? The next phase is Jesus, which is the beautiful demonstration of a healing vulnerability. So David allowed Nathan to come in a little. He had a hint of vulnerability. Then he let what Nathan say sit with him, and he had a very open dialogue, I'm sure. Maybe with Nathan again, but he eventually wrote the entire psalm. But Jesus takes it a step further where he pours out his heart to God in the garden. And in Matthew 26, we read about the Last Supper and the arrest of Jesus. And here's just a couple things. It was a beautifully vulnerable time with his disciples at the Last Supper. Not only did he say, like, man, I have, I've longed to have this supper with you. I'm, I'm so glad that we're together the guy who's going to betray him is sitting there at the table. And he loves him. It was vulnerable to have his friends with him when he knew, I'm going to be tortured and killed uh, tonight and tomorrow. And then it was vulnerable for him to take his guys to the, to the garden and pray. And he starts that by saying, I am overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's open about how he's feeling. And then he prays to God. And he says, God, I don't want to do this. 
But do we have those honest conversations? I love Peter when he writes this in 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter's quoting the Old Testament here when he talks about by his wounds you have been healed. But here's what I love. We have the ability to be vulnerable, woundable, but we also have our desire to self-protect. And what's awesome about Jesus is that his vulnerability on the cross did way more than our self-protection methods could ever do. He demonstrated, I'm going to show you what it's like to be vulnerable because you cannot protect yourself. Your ability to protect yourself is silly compared to what, you know, you're saving up in store for you. So Jesus is that healing vulnerability. Now, I have, yeah, Jesus' vulnerability does what our self-protection can never achieve. And you're still going to try. You're still going to try to, like, you know, entertain yourself to make those feelings go away, medicate yourself to make those feelings go away. They're never going to go away until you actually go to the source of healing. So I have this weird story, okay? It's from this book called The Edge of Adventure. So this, uh, now my notes are gone, so I have to just do this from memory. The, these guys are going across this desert in New Mexico, I think. And they come across, and they're like out of water, and they're on the, the verge of like dying. And they come across this pump, <laughs> like just in the middle of nowhere. It's on a trail, but it's like out in the middle of nowhere. And they want to run up to the pump and start pumping water. But attached to the handle is like this can, this like baking, baking powder can. And they're like, maybe we should look in there. So they open up this can and there's some instructions. There's a, a note written. And the note basically says, uh, don't start pumping this well. I don't know if you've ever done this, but uh, there's, a, there's like a little flapper valve in the top of this, this pump. And it's what actually lets the pump do its thing. But you ha- if this valve is, is gone or bad, then it's not going to pump up any water. But out in the desert, that valve is like made of leather. And it is going to be very dry. And if you start pumping, it will destroy the, the valve. And you won't get any water out. And the guy writes this letter, and he's like, the, the well is good. It has never run dry. It's good. I replaced this valve on this date. There is a bottle of water buried next to this rock. If you take it out, do not drink it. Here's what I need you to do. Take the bottle of water and pour a fourth of the bottle onto the valve onto the flapper valve so that it hydrates, so that it won't break. You've got to wet it. And then once it's soaked into the leather and it's nice and soft and pliable, then I need you to pour out the rest of the bottle of water into the pump while you're pumping it. Trust me, if you do this, you'll have as much water as you could possibly drink and carry with you. 
But if you drink the bottle of water, that's all you're going to have, and you won't make it out of the, off this trail. And so now these guys were in this position. Like, do we have water? We're holding a bottle of water right now. And we can take it for ourselves. Or do we trust this random old scratchy note in a can and pour out the water onto this pump, hoping that the pump will give us more water? This is what, uh, you know, one of these desert pumps looks like. See that guy? Yeah. And so you have to just pour out all the water right on top of the pump while you're pumping it. And then it will pull it up. And so then the, the question is, you know, as, as someone who's dying of thirst in the desert, and you're given a bottle of water, and you're told, don't drink it. Can you trust that this, if you do this thing, it will go well for you. The reason why I bring this story up is because this is exactly what it's like to live a life of vulnerability. The bottle of water is like our own self-protection methods. Everything we try to do to make ourselves feel safe and secure. And yet, if we dump all of those things out, we'll actually find a source of safety and security through a life of vulnerability. But the question is, do we trust God? Do we trust God? And guys, the answer, like, you know, this is church. If I say, do you trust God? You're going to be like, yes, brother, I trust God. The question is, do you trust God enough to be vulnerable? Because some of us, the answer is, no, I do not trust God enough to be vulnerable. And we demonstrate that by our lack of vulnerability. I will not be open about how I'm feeling. I will not say what I'm, what's going on in my life. I will not confess sins. I will not give you any inch of like how you could like use that or have any control or whatever. And so we are those, those thirsty men in the desert drinking up whatever we can provide for ourselves and then dying along the way. And I 100% believe if we live our life fighting and pushing back against vulnerability, there's a very good chance you just don't make it spiritually. There, there's this myth that as you get older, you need to be less vulnerable. There's this myth that if you get more mature in your faith, you've been a Christian longer, you don't need to be as vulnerable. There's this myth that if you have a, a, a more important role in the church, you need to be less vulnerable. You don't need to be as vulnerable. There's a myth that if you lead a church, you don't need to be vulnerable. And that's just dumb and dangerous. So the question is, can I trust God enough to see that it's okay? Do I really believe that if I'm vulnerable, that I'll be okay, that he'll take care of me? And I just keep going back. I, I, I think the answer is no, way more than it is yes. And so here's some, here's some practicals. We need, to be, we need to be honest with ourselves and we need to be honest with other people. Here's what I do 
to protect my heart. Because I don't want to be open and honest and vulnerable. So here's what I usually do. And these are my methods of self-protection. And just be honest. What do you do to protect yourself? Push people away. uh, Escape, run away. Lie is a big one. Prop myself up to make make myself seem more spiritual. Whatever it is, you need to identify them. And then, no, like, if I'm going to move forward, i got to set this stuff aside. I can't hold on to these things and move forward being vulnerable. I would encourage you to have an, a vulnerable talk with another disciple. Like, hey, this is what's going on in my life. It's not great. I need help. And then, like Jesus, you need to have, and like Psalm 51, you need to have that vulnerable talk with God. you got to be, I'm shocked at how many things just go unsaid. Like, well, if I never say it, then it's not real. And then as soon as you say it, it's like, oh, now it's out there. And that's, that's true with other people, but it's also true with God. But I think if we want to be the kind of people that treasure vulnerability, we got to get good at these three things. got to be honest with ourselves about how we protect ourselves. We have a vulnerable talk with people and a vulnerable talk with God. I think that if we can do that, it's not going to like radically transform your life overnight. But I think it will get you closer to the heart of God. And is that enough? Or do you need something flashier than that? <laughs> like, do you need something more spectacular than being closer to God? I hope that this is enough. That if we treasure vulnerability, we're closer to treasuring God. Amen? Guys, that's all I have for you at this time. Lauren McLaughlin is going to do our communion. Come on up, Lauren. Lauren.